Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's been a week since my last podcast, and the big news of the week, of the day, actually, I think, is the reversal in the price of gold. But before I get into that, I want to thank everybody who liked and commented and um, subscribed to the YouTube version of my podcast uh, on Tuesday. That was the last one I did. We did set a record. I'm looking at that podcast right now. And we've got 19,000 likes. That's the most likes I've had on a regular podcast. 141,000 views so far. So every one of my podcasts, the last four since I started asking for everybody to like my videos, uh, comment, and subscribe, they have all been above average views, including the one that has about 430,000 views. So it clearly is making a difference. And again, the reason that I am reminding everybody to like these videos is to help more people see them because YouTube takes uh, these likes and incorporates them into some algorithm and decides, hey, this is a good video. People like it, so let's show it to other people. Uh, you know, and by the way, if you're among the the many people who did not like the last video, because again, I got 19,000 likes out of 141,000 views. And if you, by the way, if you view it more than once, I don't know if it counts, right? I think it, it keeps track of that. But it's not too late to go back and like it and get me up to 20,000. That'd be nice to hit 20,000. But before you go back and like the last podcast, make sure and like this one. If you're not sure how to do it, you look for that little thumbs up. That's the like. It's a thumbs up. There's a thumbs up, thumbs down. Go to the thumbs up and click on it. And then every time you go back to the video, it'll show you that you liked it. But don't click it again. Then you'll unlike it. So make sure and like it. And if you don't like it for whatever reason, you, you can click thumbs down too. Apparently that helps also. It's just the engagement. But if you click the thumbs down, maybe leave me a little note. Let me know what you didn't like about the video. I'd be curious about anybody who watches my videos and then doesn't like them, right? What the hell is the point of watching them if, uh, if you don't like them? But anyway, so let me get into the, uh, the, the, uh, the meat of, uh, of, this, of this podcast. And I wanted to start 
by talking about gold. Because if you go back and listen to and like the podcast I did a week ago Friday, I was pretty sure that we had just seen the lows in gold. And the reason that I was pretty sure was because we had that outside reversal day. We got the jobs report on that Friday, which came out much better than expected because, you know, people don't look beneath the surface to see all the crappy jobs that were being created. They just look at the total number and they don't uh, bother to check, you know, what, how, how was that comprised? The fact that we lost eight or 900,000 full-time jobs and replaced them with a million one uh, lousy, low-paying part-time jobs is not good news. And the fact that all these jobs went to people who already had jobs and would prefer not to have a third job, again, this is evidence of weakness, not strength. But I already addressed that in the other podcast. But when we got that big number that shocked the markets, gold tanked, well, 10 bucks, not really tanked, but it dropped 10 bucks. But in doing that, it took out the low from the previous day and then rallied and closed above the high from the previous day. And I said, I think we've seen the lows. That is a significant outside reversal day. Today, gold was up better than $60. It's up $64 on the day. One of the biggest up days we've seen in some time in gold. It closed at 1933. We're $110 above the low from Friday. That is a significant move in one week for the price of gold. And I've been saying that the support was below 1900. I knew that anything below 1900 was a good buy. Now, it got further beneath 1900 than I expected. We got to about 1820-ish on Friday morning. But here we are, 1933. We've almost lost, the, recovered the entire decline because before gold got clobbered, and the reason it got clobbered was, you know, bond rates went up. But it was about 1950. That's where it was. So. Gold has almost done a complete round trip. So the money has come in uh, to buy the dip in gold, which is what I expected. The next thing for gold to do is to get back above 2000. That's where the resistance is. And to see if we can test that resistance and then break through. Because once gold really starts to move, let's say we take out 2100, I think these 64 days will be par for the course. I think we're going to have a lot more of these days. In fact, I think we're going to have bigger days. I think we're going to see days where gold is up more than $100 a day because gold has a long way to go to catch up to where it needs to be. By the way, silver also had a big day today. Let me check the price. Silver had the same type of outside reversal day that gold did a week ago. And so I said the same thing. And here we are up 92 cents an ounce for silver today. We close at $22.73. So silver, gold, both looking good. In fact, it wasn't just regular gold uh, that looked good, but black gold. Oil was up about $4.5 on the day, up $4.57. 86.37 is where we went out. And I've been saying, you know, and I, I said last week that gold and oil are going to be moving in the same direction. And that certainly happened today. We've been seeing them moving in the opposite direction because oil had been going up until its recent correction. And gold was going down because gold was following bonds down. Gold and bonds uh, were, were falling. 
at the same time. But that is not the correlation that ultimately is going to persist. It's going to be the opposite. Bonds have rallied over the past couple of days, despite news that should have sent them lower. I think what's supporting the bond market is the uh, situation in the Middle East, in, in Israel, with what's happening in Gaza and, and, and the potential that this could blow up into a much bigger situation. People are downplaying this, I think, the significance. Janet Yellen was out there today. I'm not sure where she was speaking, IMF or someplace. And she basically said, oh, it's nothing to worry about, right? The situation there, it, it, it's not going to make any kind of impact on the global economy. Uh, so it's, it, it, it doesn't really matter, right? She was, really was downplaying the risk of the situation. And first of all, it's another problem on top of a mountain of problems, right? It's the last thing we need. It's not like, you know, everything is great. And now we've got this problem in the Middle East. Everything is awful. And now we've got another deal, another problem that we've got to deal with. But she is underestimating the potential there. I mean, there's there's no, I don't think, good way out of this. I mean, Israel is in a very difficult situation. Netanyahu has no good options, in my opinion. I mean, he, he, he can't do nothing, right? He's got to have a serious response to a very serious threat. Uh, but again, the minute he does that, you've got all these Arabs all around the world that uh, are very sympathetic to the Palestinians and, and what's happening there. And even in the United States, I mean, if you have all the this sympathy being expressed for the Palestinians uh, in America, imagine what's going on in Saudi Arabia and other countries over there. And I just read, and this is exactly what I said a week ago, uh, or the last podcast, that now the Saudis are backing out of that peace deal, that treaty that they had going with Israel. Of course, that they, now they can't do it, which again, when I was speculating on my last podcast, that that may have been the very reason, the impetus for this terrorist attack and why Iran may have been pushing for this attack because they wanted to derail that Israel-Saudi uh, deal. They didn't want that. And so now they can't have it because the Saudi royal family, you know, can't do it. But there is, there is no uh, easy way out of this. This is going to get worse. Uh, and it's very unfortunate that this is happening. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how bad it's going to get, but it, it, it's not insignificant. And it's going to have an impact on the oil price, which was going up anyway. But that's a problem. And, you know, Janet Yellen maybe hasn't noticed, but we've used up most of the strategic petroleum reserve. This is not a really good time to potentially have some kind of disruption uh, to the global oil supply, but it could happen. And there was already going to be uh, upward pressure. And we're spending more money. I mean, there's no question uh, that uh, what's happening in the Middle East is going to lead to more money being spent, more aid, military aid, whatever it's going to be. Again, I mentioned these defense contractors. They're not going up because they don't expect to get more orders. Well, where's the money coming from, right? Bigger deficits. That's the last thing we need is bigger deficits. You know, we got a bond auction yesterday. Horrible auction. Big tail. Uh, the bond market tanked when, you know, the Treasury auction happened. Uh, bond prices, I believe, would be much lower. I think it would be above 5% right now on, on the 30-year. We'd be making new highs in yields, but for this situation, I think, in the Middle East, which is, has created a bit of a bid 
in the Treasury market. But that bid will not last. <clears throat> but that auction that we got was 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 horrific. Anyway, I got a quick commercial break. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up on this thought on the other side of this break. So stick around. Hopefully, some of you took advantage of that commercial break to hit that like button. And if you didn't do it, you'll have one more chance on the next break. In the meantime, I was talking about the uh, horrible Treasury bond auction that we had yesterday. And what's amazing about these bond auctions is that anybody bothers to show up. I mean, why do people want these bonds? That is the real threat. One of these days, there's going to be a Treasury bond auction and there will be no bidders. You want to make sure that when that day arrives, you've got all the gold that you need. Because if you don't have it at that point, you won't be able to buy it because the price will be too high. That'll be the end of it. Because if nobody shows up, well, then the party's over. The, now, of course, the Fed will crash the party and be the buyer, not of last resort, but of only resort. But that means it's over. That means the U.S. government is done. It can't continue the Ponzi anymore because there's no suckers left uh, to, uh, to buy. And so it, it, it's the American public, the dollar holders that are the bag holders, because now they own a currency uh, that is going to collapse in value. You know, I was listening to this guy on uh, on CNBC, and this is about inflation. And I got some inflation numbers. We got the CPI came out yesterday, PPI on Wednesday. I'm going to talk about both of those numbers. But because the inflation numbers were coming out, they were, you know, on CBC, they were devoting some coverage to this. And this guy was on there. I don't remember, um, you know, where he worked for, but they were really must have looked far and wide to find a guy, you know, this ignorant to, to bring on bring on the air. But he's talking about the Fed and inflation. And he said, well, you know, the Fed really can't do anything to bring the inflation rate down. You know, their, their policy tools really don't work. And he said, because remember all the years that inflation was below 2% and the Fed was trying like hell to get it up to 2%? He said it didn't work. The policy had no effect. And so the Fed wasn't able to get inflation up to 2% using its tools. And now that it's above 2%, it's not going to be able to bring it back down. So let's just, you know, not even focus on the Fed, right? And just, you know, let inflation do what inflation is going to do. I mean, I almost fell off my chair when I'm listening to this nonsense. This, this is what uh, they present to the public. Uh, but this guy hasn't figured this out yet. And I guess this is probably the case with a lot of other people. The Fed's policy didn't have no effect. It had a huge effect. This guy doesn't realize that the reason inflation is so high right now is because the Fed's policy worked. It worked in that it did cause higher inflation. It didn't work in that it stopped at 2%. No, no, they exceeded beyond their wildest expectations. Their policy did push inflation up. It pushed it up too much. It just did it with a lag. Now, again, part of the reason for the lag was the methodology used to measure prices, flawed as it was. So the whole time that the CPI was saying that inflation was below 2%, it was above 2%. So it, 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 it was already there. They were already above target when they were trying to hit the target. You know, it'd be like, you know, you, you got a, 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 a thermometer and it's broken. And, and so when you take your temperature, it, it, it has a, uh, a certain reading. And 
the reading maybe is 98.6 and you say everything is fine and the patient is getting sicker and sicker and he's sweating and he's, you know, he looks really bad or he's got the chill, but you keep taking his temperature and it's like 98.6. It's like, well, there's nothing wrong with the guy. Well, no, because you know, the thermometer is wrong. It's not giving you an accurate reading on, on what's happening. You got to actually look with your eyes and throw away that broken thermometer and realize that you got a sick patient there. Uh, and, and that's what was going on with inflation. They kept looking at this broken thermometer that was like 1.7% inflation, 1.6% inflation, and they're ignoring the fact that the patient is, you know, getting very sick. But then the patient got so sick when the inflation rate just exploded, you know, up, you know, towards 10%. Then, of course, you know, by then it's like, all right, you know, yeah, we got a problem. This guy doesn't realize that the Fed credited, but the other part was the lag. Because the way this inflation entered the economy, it did it through the financial system. But that's how, that was how the inflation was administered. That's how the money entered the economy. It entered through uh, the banking system and the financial sector. It was We didn't just start directly mailing money to people till we got the COVID stimulus checks. And that's what you know put it up on steroids. But the money went into the economy through the financial system and then gradually made its way into the real economy. So the money had to go from Wall Street to Main Street. So initially, as the money entered the financial economy, the inflation pushed up financial asset prices, stock prices, bond prices, real estate prices. Those prices rose as a consequence of the money supply and the credit pushing them up. But as that money rounded the corner and made its way onto Main Street, where people were spending it on real goods instead of financial assets, that's when you saw the price of food and energy and rent and used cars and all this stuff start to go up because people weren't using the money now to buy stocks right, or bonds. They were using it to buy food. And so it took a while, though, uh, for the money to flow all the way around over to Main Street. And that's why it took so long. But to say that what the Fed did, all those years of 0% interest rates and QE, that that had no effect on prices, of course it had an effect. We are living with the consequences of that effect right now. But this guy hasn't figured that out. And so, yes, the Fed can bring down inflation, but it needs to significantly shrink its balance sheet. We're still barely below $8 trillion. In fact, if you look at the, the numbers we got, we got the Fed balance sheet, as we always do, on Thursday, and the balance sheet shrank by 3.7 billion. That's it for the week. I mean, that wasn't a big deal. And we're at 7.952 trillion. They need a far more substantial decline in the balance sheet. They need a lot more shrinkage to try to suck out uh, all this inflation. Uh, But again, as I pointed out, all that cheap money is what drove a lot of spending and a lot of borrowing. And even though the money is less cheap than it was, the borrowing and spending are continuing unabated. Uh, And so the rate hikes have really had no effect yet because they haven't been aggressive enough given how much money, how much inflation has already been created. And again, that's another thing that, that this guy and other people don't get. When the Fed spends over a decade creating inflation, again, remember, What did they say? And not just on our side of the Atlantic. The ECB was saying the same thing. The Japanese were singing the same song. We don't have enough inflation. 
Inflation is too low. We need to create inflation. Every central bank had a policy of we need inflation. We must create inflation. We don't have enough inflation. I was one of the only people that was saying that was such BS that we needed more inflation like a hole in the head. You know, we should have been glad that we didn't have more inflation. Uh, but the politicians made up this ridiculous 2% target and said we're not there and we need more. And so because of all the years of deliberately filling the pipeline with inflation, now we've got the deluge. Now we're beginning to see the consequences. We're on the cusp of it. We're early days in the process. Prices have a long way to rise to catch up with the inflation that's already been created. Forget about the inflation that they're going to create in the future. And they're going to create a lot. You know, when nobody wants to buy U.S. Treasuries, when we get to that point where the bond market really starts to collapse and the Fed has to be the buyer of only reserve, you know, yield curve control, when that happens, uh, then they're going to flood the economy with even more inflation than what's already there. And so these prices are going to move up. So the guy was totally wrong uh, that it's beyond the Fed's control. And he was kind of saying that we don't have to worry, right? Everything is, you know, it's all coming back down. In fact, look at Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman had this tweet, you know, he put up this chart of inflation, taking out food, energy, shelter, and cars. And he said, look, if you take out these four things, we're back down to 2%. So we won. Yeah, you take out food, clothing, and shelter, what's left? I mean, after most people finish paying for these inflated prices, prices have gone up so much for food, clothing, and shelter. When you're finished paying for that, you got nothing left. So even if that stuff hasn't moved up in price, who cares? You can't even afford to buy it anyway. Uh, but, you know, he's wrong. I mean, I think part of the collateral damage, hopefully, in the inflation war is going to be Paul Krugman's uh, reputation. You know, I still would love to debate this guy. He just refuses uh, all invitations. In fact, I threw down the gauntlet on Twitter not too long ago. I said, you know, come on, let's debate. You think inflation lost? I think it won. Let's debate. I mean, he can even bring his Nobel Prize if he wants for, for moral support. You know, he could bring a few more of his buddies, too, if he needs if he needs some help in a debate. But, you know, he's, he's, he's got no chance if he tries to debate me on this inflation topic. But anyway, we got one more commercial break. We'll be right back. So stick around. The way I, I came directly from my hyperbaric oxygen chamber uh, to this podcast, I just finished up uh, my, my two hours uh, that I do. You know, it's very cozy in there. And because it is so cozy, the time really flies by. Sometimes, you know, when it's over, I don't even feel like leaving. I'm just very comfortable in there uh, do it, doing my work or whatever I'm doing. But anyway, I want to get back uh, to the conversation on inflation. Because in addition to all the, the nonsense, you know, that we got on why the inflation war is over and somehow uh, we've already won and it was like no, no big deal, right? We, you know, we, 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 we didn't, it didn't even hurt us because we didn't have a recession. Meanwhile, people are hurting right now. In fact, there was just a survey that came out. I saw it up uh, initially on a Zero Hedge tweet that more than 50% of the public now uh, are saying that higher prices are really harming their standard of living, right? So Paul Krugman is talking about how we've won the inflation war, uh, but the public is, 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 is suffering because they are, they are losing this war. In fact, the consumer sentiment numbers came out today. And it was much weaker than expected. The, um, the number came out at 63. And that was a huge drop from the 68.1 in the prior month. And way lower than the expectation, which was 67.5. And the reason for the big drop was the huge increase 
in inflation expectations, which were 3.2% last month. They now jumped up to 3.8%. That's the highest in five months. So the Fed is claiming victory. Krugman is cheerleading victory. Hey, we've got inflation, but here, expectations are rising. And especially when the Fed places so much, you know, uh, awaiting on expectations, right? Because the Fed thinks that prices go up because consumers expect it. And, and that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's BS. It's got nothing to do with expectations. But considering that they think expectations play a big role, this should be a big deal that the consumers are now expecting 3.8 when the Fed is targeting 2.0 and the numbers are going in the wrong direction. So that's one of the reasons that you got consumers uh, so upset uh, because everything they need to buy is so much more expensive. But anyway, let's get into these official numbers that we got. First, the PPI, the Producer Price Index, that came out on, uh, on Wednesday. So the expectation was for a rise of 0.3, and the actual increase was 0.5. So substantially above the estimate, not as high as the prior month, but the prior month was up 0.7. That was a big deal. Now you got 0.7 one month, 0.5 another month. These are big numbers back to back. The year-over-year increase now, which was 1.6% last month, below 2%, that that prior month was revised up to 2% from the original 1.6. The expectation for this month was up 1.7, and it came out at up 2.2. So now we're back above 2%, headed higher. Uh, X food and energy, month over month, that was in line at up 0.3, but that's still, you annualize 0.3, that's still above 2%. If you take 0.3 12 times, uh, but the year-over-year year, X food and energy, the actual year-over-year, year is 2.7, well above 2%. And again, this is the producer prices, not the consumer prices. So this number came out hotter than expected. Again, gold shrugged that off. Uh, we didn't have a big sell-off in gold uh, like we might have in the past off of a hot CPI. Again, reinforcing the fact that gold has seen its lows. Uh, we've tested support below 1900. It was a big test. It got way below 1900. It never got below 1800. And the buying came in with a vengeance. And again, now we're 1930 and change. I think we're now headed back up to test the other side. And we'll see if that resistance uh, continues to hold or if it fails. I mean, my money is that it's going to fail. The question is, when? Will this be the time? Or is it going to have to bang against that a wall a few more times. We'll 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 see. But I, I added personally, I bought more gold stocks on this dip. I, I mentioned that on the podcast that I was in there buying with my own money on that dip. And I did. And so now I'm kind of sitting back and see what happens. But I'm glad I got that opportunity. You know, don't get mad, get even. You know, if the markets are dumb enough to sell off these stocks and the price goes down, don't get upset because your your account is down. It's an opportunity for you to buy more. The prices are immaterial if you don't sell. Yeah, now, if you're fooled, if you get shaken out, if you get scared, if you think, oh, my God, I better get out because the price went down and it might go lower, yeah, then it means something. If you're dumb enough to sell into that market, yeah, you you take a loss. But if you're smart enough to take the other side of that trade, you turn somebody else's uh, mistake into your reward. They panic, and you take advantage of the situation. Because you know what's going to happen? When we get back up to the highs, 
there are going to be some people that want to buy. Oh, my God, it's really moving up. I better get in. Right? That's, that's what I take step back. If anything, you could, you could sell a little bit up there if you wanted to, if you're trading. But I like to buy low. I mean, you know, call me crazy, but I, I like to pay lower prices, right? So when the prices go up, I kind of sit back uh, and I wait and see what happens. Uh, and if I get another opportunity to buy cheap again, I'll do it. I keep building my portfolio because I, I earn money. I got to do something with it. I don't spend it all. Uh, and if that's the case with most people, you get an opportunity, you earn some money, you got to put it someplace. And if the things that you like are cheaper in price, well, it's a great time to deploy, uh, deploy that money. But I also, I said I have cash on the sidelines because the markets are weak. You know, I saw another one of the stocks I like today that, that went down. It was 52-week low. I bought some of it. You know, that's what you do. You have dry powder and you get, you know, opportunities and you, you know, you, you, you take advantage of them. Uh, but anyway, so um, the CPI, which came out yesterday, again, hotter than ex- expectation. The consensus was for a 0.3% increase in uh, prices for September. And we were up 0.4. And 0.4 is not a low number. I mean, if you're targeting 2% inflation, you can't have 0.4. Because if you have 0.4 for 12 months, you're way more than, uh, than, than, than 2%. And prior month was up 0.6. So if you average 0.6 and 0.4, the last two months, it averages half a percent, 0.5. That's a big number. Nowhere close to annualizing 2%. The year-over-year CPI up 3.7%. That matches the 3.7% from the prior month, but now you got two months back-to-back of 3.7 in an upward trend. How is that making progress to 2%? You're not. Not making any progress. Ex-food and energy, this so-called core, was up 0.3% on the month. It was up 0.3% last month. That's not getting any better. And again, if you have 3.3% every month, you're nowhere near 2%. In fact, the year-over-year core was up 4.1%. Yes, a little bit less than the 4.3% from the prior month, but back-to-back months above 4 that's double the so-called target. The Fed is nowhere near achieving this goal. You've got all these people, uh, you know, you know, celebrating this premature victory. Look, the Fed is pretty much out of ammo. We got more uh, confirmation from uh, FOMC members that were talking this week that the Fed is basically done with rate hikes. I mean, maybe there's one more 25 basis point hike coming, but maybe not at all. A lot of people now think that that's it. Well, if the Fed is done hiking rates, How's it going to stop inflation from getting worse? It's already moved rates from zero to five, five and a quarter, five and a half. And the inflation problem hasn't gone away. We're still way above 2% despite all those rate hikes. And what's the Fed going to do if after we kind of bottom out at this 3 4% level, we start going back up to 9%? What are they going to do? Are they going to raise another 500 basis points? Are they going to bring rates up to 10%? I don't think so. But that's what the market would require. But they're not going to do that. They're pretty much out of ammo, right? And, and so when the markets digest this, you know, a $66, $63 day in gold, that's going to be a small move compared to what's going to happen when investors figure it out. And more importantly, the bond market is going to get clobbered. It's not going to matter about this so-called safe haven 
uh, because of you know the Middle East. Bonds are a risk asset. They're not risk off. They are nothing but risk because you have inflation risk. Forget about default risk. Inflation is the real risk because that's how the government defaults. That's how a sovereign nation that borrows in its own currency defaults. It defaults through inflation. And when the national debt is spiraling out of control, you know, out of curiosity, let me bring up the uh, national debt clock and, 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 and see what's going on right now. I mean, you never know. This thing just can explode at any moment. I, I doubt we're at $34 trillion yet, but we'll, we'll be there shortly. We're at $33.554 trillion. So uh, probably by two weeks from now, I'm sure we'll be over $34 trillion in the national debt. But when debt is spiraling out of control like this, when interest on the national debt is spiraling out of control, inflation is an enormous risk. Now, one person that was actually talking about some of these risks on CNBC, I was, you know, uh, talking about all the fools they had on CNBC. And that's generally, you know, who they invite. But they did have Paul Tudor Jones on, who, who's, who's certainly no fool. And there's, you know, a lot of things that, that he gets right. And he was on, he did a very long interview on, on, on CNBC. Maybe they have the interview um, on, uh, on YouTube. I haven't checked because I, I actually watched it, you know, when he, when he was doing it or listened to it. Um, and one of the things that I want to discuss that he brought out where I think, you know, he was sugarcoating the problem. I mean, at least he's talking about the problem, but then he, he, he sugarcoated it. He said that the U.S. is in the worst fiscal shape it's been in since the end of the Second World War, right? Because at the end of the Second World War, we had a lot of debt because we borrowed a lot of money to fight that war, right? We, we had tremendous debt to GDP. And so now we have the same kind of debt to GDP that we had then. That's why he's saying we're in as bad a shape now as we were then, except he's wrong. We're in much worse shape now. It's not even close. And, and here's the difference. First of all, the GDP back then was, was a lot more substantial than it is now. Now it's a bunch of fluff. It's a bunch of uh, debt finance consumption, right? Our GDP is 70% consumer spending. And, and what money are they spending? They're spending borrowed money. And what are they buying? Imports. So it's, it's a very uh, unhealthy, uh, vulnerable GDP. Whereas back in the 40s, our GDP was much more real. It was more wealth production. You know, the, the manufacturing, mining, all that stuff was a much bigger portion, business investment, uh, than it is today. And we didn't have these trade deficits, and we had consumers were in good shape, household balance sheet, people had a lot of savings. Uh, so the GDP was in much better shape. But looking at the fiscal situation of the government, during the Second World War, Early in the war, and I've talked about that this on the podcast, the government raised taxes substantially to pay for that war. Now, the tax hikes didn't pay for all the war, so the government still had to borrow a lot of money because the tax hikes weren't enough, but they were substantial. The biggest one, the income tax hikes. Uh, and prior to the war, up until 1942, nobody had taxes withheld from their pay. So the way you paid the income tax, everybody paid it. And there were no, you know, even quarterly withholdings. So let's say, you know, this is the year 2023. 
you would earn all your money, you'd get your paycheck, there'd be no deductions, although there was a Social Security deduction. That started in the 1930s. So in the 1930s, they started taking the 1% Social Security from your wages. Now, if you were self-employed, you, you didn't have to deal with Social Security. It didn't apply to you, right? Because the government thought, hey, if you're smart enough to run your own business, you're smart enough to save for your own retirement, right? It was supposedly the working guy who was too dumb to save for his retirement, so the government was going to do it. Except the government didn't save anything and spent all the money. I mean, the, the government was worried that, that individuals wouldn't save for their retirement, so they took Social Security taxes out of their pay. But now the government spent every nickel of that money and didn't save anything. There's no way that the workers would have done a worse job than the government. But that's why you never want the government to do anything for you because they will screw up anything they do. But in any event, that, that's a divergence. I want to stick with my, my topic that, that I'm on. Uh, so you earn your money during 2023. Nothing gets taken out of your pay. Then the following year, come April 15th, you figure out what you earned last year and what you owe in taxes, and you sent the government a check. That was how everybody did it up until 1942. Now, of course, if they did that now, how many people, if the U.S. government didn't withhold taxes, didn't take the taxes right out of your pay, how many people on April 15th in 2024 would have any money left over to pay their taxes from 2023? There's no chance. The government wouldn't get any money. The people would just spend it. But back then... Americans were more responsible and the tax rates were lower and people had, you know, healthier balance sheets. Everybody was able to write the government a check that didn't bounce four months after the end of the tax year. I mean, that's why you had until April 15th to pay because, you know, you had to figure out what you earned. You didn't know what you earned until the year was over, right? You had to have the year. If it's an income tax, it's the income for the whole year, not the income for the week or the income for the month. So the entire year would end. And then you would look back and figure out, you know, what, what you owed, right? Well, during the Second World War, the government couldn't wait, right? We, we had to pay the soldiers. We couldn't wait for a year to get our money. The government needed the money right away. And so that's when they introduced withholding. The withholding tax came in to finance World War II. Then they had the victory tax, came later. But they, they raised more taxes. I mean, income taxes went way up during the war. I mean, four, you know, they tripled, quadrupled. A lot of people who didn't pay any income tax before the war started paying income taxes during the war. Now, nobody complained because, you know, we needed it for the war. I mean, if you were at home paying taxes, that was better than being, you know, in, in North Africa fighting the Germans or being in the Pacific fighting the Japanese. Who's going to complain about paying income tax when other people are, you know, risking their lives, right, to, to keep us safe? So... People just paid these taxes, and they were patriotic, and they did it. But not only did Americans pay taxes, they bought, they bought the war bonds. So they paid taxes to the government, and then they loaned money to the government right, to fight the war. But anyway, when the war ended, um, we demobilized 20 million men. The government wasn't spending this money anymore. But the tax revenue was still there. The government had all this money. None of the taxes that the government imposed to fight World War II, none of them were removed when the war was over, right? So we won the war, but the taxpayers lost because they got stuck with the bill forever. 
That's why I joke that America has lost every war, because every war we end less free than we started, because we get all these wartime taxes and regulations that never go away when the wars go away. They stick. And then we get another war and we get more. So when we ended the Second World War, the government had all this cash coming in that it, it didn't have to pay the soldiers anymore. It didn't have to buy ammunition. And so it was able to use that big windfall. And so the deaths came down. The debt to GDP came down. And in fact, it was like, what, 120% or 130%. It was down by the 1980s. It was down to 30% or something like that. So we, we, you know, the debt became a lot smaller because the government was in a very strong fiscal position to deal with all that debt at the end of the Second World War. Flash forward to today. The government is in a lousy fiscal position. There are no surpluses. The government had surpluses when the war was over. It was that, that so it could pay back the money it borrowed. We don't have any surpluses now. You know, we had a war on terror. We had the war on COVID, whatever. We have massive deficits as far as the eye can see. So, yes, we have the same debt to GDP now that we had in 1945, but we have no ability to bring it down like we did back then because the deficits are going to go higher and higher and higher. We're going to go to 130%, 140%, 150%, 200%. There is no ability. ability. The government can't get blood from a stone. People are already paying high taxes. They can't pay anything higher. And then as the government tries to raise rates, they're going to actually get less revenue because people are going to stop paying or they're going to quit working or they're going to cheat more. They're going to work under the table. They, they can't pay anymore. And we have, you know, Social Security payments. There was no Social Security problem in 1945. Who was collecting Social Security in 1945? They didn't even start it until the 1930s. So hardly anybody was collecting. Everybody was paying in. The government was collecting all this Social Security money and was paying out nothing. Whereas there was no one collecting yet. So it was very different. When, when Paul Tudor Jones tries to say it's as bad as it was then. No, it's so much worse. And there's no way out. It's just going to keep getting uh, worse from here. And again, we have huge trade deficits that we didn't have back then. Uh, families have no savings. I mean, imagine in America, American families not only could pay higher taxes to pay for the Second World War, but they had extra money left over to buy government bonds. Who bought all the government bonds to finance the war on terror or you know the war on COVID? The Fed. There was, you never saw, like in the, in, during the Second World War, you had people going all around the country, right? The, the, the government had all these celebrities, you know, Bob Hope or whoever these people were. They would, you know, they would do these war bond rallies and they would go from town to town getting pub, the public to buy these war bonds to help pay for the war. We didn't do that. We didn't go anywhere trying to convince anyone to buy bonds. The government never said, hey, we're going to fight this war on COVID, uh, so we need, we need help. We need you to lend us some money to pay for this. No, they was like, don't worry. just We're going to send you money. We're going to send you stimulus checks while we're fighting this war. Nobody has to do anything. We just print the money. Yeah, they printed some money during World War II, too, but not like this. They, they paid for a lot of that war with legitimate taxes and legitimate, legitimate borrowing, which was repaid. Nobody, no Americans had any money to buy government bonds, even if the government you know, went around with its hat in its hand, asking the average American to put something in there. They had nothing to put in. They, they, they were broke. The only reason they had any money is because the government gave it to them. 
But where did the government get that money? From the Fed. Right? And that's why we have all this in, infl inflation right now. So it is, it is night and day. I mean, I don't know if Paul Tudor Jones understands how much worse, as bad as he thinks it is, it's so much worse. Now, he did mention that one of the things he's buying is gold, and I agree with him on that one. Now, he's still buying Bitcoin, so I disagree with him there. Uh, but, you know, he, I thought it was interesting because he said that Bitcoin and gold were the barbarous relics that he wants to buy. I mean, since when is Bitcoin a barbarous relic? I mean, it's barely been around 10 years. I thought you had to be around for a long time to be a relic of the past, right, which is what, how people characterize gold. Uh, but I thought Bitcoin was supposed to be brand new, like, you know, gold 2.0. Uh, but, I, you know, Bitcoin, again, it's sold off since, you know, and I mentioned that I thought it was looking weak. And, and even though gold's gone way up in the last week, Bitcoin's actually drifted lower. It hasn't broken down, but it will. I mean, I, I would be very nervous if I was sitting with a bunch of Bitcoin. I, I would just sell. In fact, you know, at Shift Gold, we can help you do that. You can, you can send us your Bitcoin, and in one process, we sell it uh, and get dollars, and then you can take those fiat dollars and turn them into gold and get real money. So I would, you know, I would recommend that people uh, that are holding fool's gold turn it into the real thing uh, while, while they can. But anyway, getting back to what I was talking about. So we are in much uh, worse shape. It, there is no precedent for how bad the fiscal situation is right now. This is a ticking time bomb, uh, and it's going to go off. And you can see that by looking at the bond market. But when it really accelerates, when the gold price really starts to move, when the dollar tanks, the dollar, you know, to me, it's looking toppy. It's still hanging on to 106. It hasn't dropped, but it didn't get any kind of rally off uh, what happened in the Middle East. So, again, you know, you're not seeing this big flight to quality in the dollars, even though you saw it in treasuries somewhat. But, again, if you don't like dollars, then you don't like treasuries even more. Because, again, treasuries are simply IOU dollars. And so if you don't want dollars today, you sure as hell don't want dollars in 10 years or 30 years. Because if they're losing value now, just imagine how much more value they're going to lose over a time frame that long. So this crisis is coming. But another thing uh, that um, Paul Jr. Tudor Jones talked about. Oh, before I do that, though, because I, I forgot to mention this. I should have mentioned it at the top of the, the podcast. I was too busy telling people to like it. And again, if you didn't like it, you still have time to do it. Uh, but um, I'm going to do the Q&A at the end of this podcast at shiftradio.com slash premium uh, for the uh, locals members. So uh, if you already are a uh, premium member, get ready for the q and I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of questions that they want answered. If you're not now a premium member, sign up. You know, what the hell is five bucks? No big deal. Sign up and then, you know, I'll take maybe a five minute break, catch my breath drink some water, so give you a little time to, to sign up uh, to participate in the Q&A that will start almost immediately after the conclusion of today's podcast. But I want to wrap it up by talking about another thing that uh, Paul Tudor Jones uh, mentioned. He was talking about the fiscal situation, again, sugarcoating it, but saying we need politicians with the courage to do something about spending, do something about the budget deficits, that we can't stay on this path. It's unsustainable. We've got to have some combination of tax hikes 
and spending cut. And the only taxes that he said we needed to raise were taxes on, uh, on the rich. Now, it doesn't take a lot of guts. He's calling for politicians to have guts to raise taxes, but he's saying that we should raise taxes on the rich. It doesn't take a lot of guts to raise taxes on the rich. I mean, every politician almost is like, yeah, let's tax the hell out of the rich because how many votes are there, right? If you think about it, the 1%, right? That's who they mean. Like, let's tax the hell out of the 1%. Well, the 99%, yeah, that's great because it's not going to affect me. So it doesn't take political courage to tell the voters, we're going to tax this guy who's way richer than you. We're not going to tax you. The courage is to tell the middle-class voters, I'm raising your taxes. You got to pay for these deficits. That would be courage. But it, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, he isn't even a politician. He's not even running for office. And he doesn't have the courage to talk about middle-class tax hikes. I mean, maybe because the guy's a billionaire and he's afraid of how it's going to look if this billionaire is saying we got to raise taxes on the middle class. So he wants to say, let's raise taxes on the rich. Well, maybe we can raise taxes on them too. But it depends on how they earn their money. If, you, if you're talking about closing the carried interest loophole, yeah, sure, do that. You know, tax uh, hedge funds, uh, ordinary income and not capital gains. But you don't want to raise the marginal tax rate. It's already too high. It's going to backfire. You're going to get less revenue if you do that. Business owners who are making an honest living, even if they're making a good living, uh, they're already dealing with high taxes and lots of regulation, especially if they're in a blue state and they're getting hit by, by the state government too. So that's going to backfire. What we actually need, if we're going to raise revenue, and I would prefer to do the whole thing with spending cuts, but Paul Tudor Jones said, no, we're never going to do it all with spending cuts. We need revenue. We need a sales tax. We need a value-added tax. We have to tax consumption. That's the only way around it. And it's going to hit the middle class. It's going to hit the poor. There's no way around that. But they're getting hit right now through inflation. They're paying the tax through higher prices. So I would say, look, if you want to, if you want to pay lower prices, if you want to have inflation go down, you're going to have to pay higher taxes. That's the trade-off. If you don't want to pay higher taxes, then you're going to keep paying higher prices because that's how you're paying for government. You're paying through inflation. But the other part where I think he kind of wimped out was when it came to uh, spending cuts, he said, and, you know, we got to reform entitlements. That's what he said. We got to reform entitlements, right? Politicians always say, let's reform entitlements instead of let's cut entitlements. They don't need to be reformed. They need to be cut. The problem is we're spending too much money. But here you have a guy who's not even running for office, who has no courage to say cut entitlements. He still wants to say we have to reform them. So if, if he can't even talk about cutting entitlements, he's so afraid to mention that, how does he expect the politicians to actually do it? He can't even talk about it, and he's not even running for office. That is a problem. No politician who wants to get reelected is going to say, we've got to take away your Social Security. That's why they call it the third rail of politics. You touch it, and you die. Right? Nobody wants to talk about cutting Social Security, even for people who aren't getting it. The only time they want to talk about maybe cutting Social Security is they say, well, in 20 or 30 years, when all the current people who are collecting Social Security are dead and they can no longer vote, we're going to, we're going to take benefits away from those guys. Right? But that's not going to work. If you have an immediate budget problem where you need to control your spending, you have to cut spending on Social Security right now, not simply reduce what you're going to spend in 20 or 30 years. That's irrelevant to your current needs. So if the government is going to uh, 
save money on entitlements. It needs to cut the benefits. It means that the people who are getting Social Security checks right now, who are going to the mailbox every month or wherever they get them, you know, and they're getting a check, people have to get a smaller check. They have to be told the check you're getting, you're going to get a lower check. Some people have to be told you're not getting any checks at all. That has to happen. Right? I'm fine. I'm 60 years old. I'm fine with the government saying, Peter, you're not getting any Social Security. I'm okay with that. You know, uh, And a lot of people have to be told that. You're not going to get, yeah, I spent a lot of money. I paid a lot of money in over my life, and it's all gone. The government blew it. And okay, I got to deal with it. The government's broke. They can't give me my Social Security money. And there's a lot of other people. They've got to be told, you're not going to get this money. It's gone. And only if we tell some people they're not going to get any money can we then tell some people they'll get some money, the people who really need it, the people who are broke and depend on it. And, of course, one of the reasons they're now broke and depend on Social Security is because the government taxed the hell out of them when they were working and left them that way. It's like the government cripples you, right, and now, you know, you're left crippled, and so they hand you a crutch, and you think, yeah, you depend on this government crutch. Yeah, but if they didn't cripple you, you wouldn't have needed the crutch. You could have walked on your own. A lot of people who need Social Security would not need it had the government not taxed the hell out of them when they were working, and they could have taken that money, and they could have saved for their own retirement. But we're at the reality where this Ponzi scheme is up, and we need real cuts in Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare, government pensions. Everybody is going to have to take a haircut. If not, we're all going to take a crew cut through inflation. Again, I've said this many, many times. The government is broke, and it can't pay. It can't pay its bondholders. It can't pay Social Security. It can't pay Medicare. It can't pay anything. The only question is, how is it going to default? The honest way or the dishonest way? Since these are politicians, it's pretty obvious they're going to go the dishonest way, and that is inflation. So everybody gets paid, everybody gets their money, but the money doesn't have much value, and you can't buy very much with it. So before the money collapses, get rid of it now. Turn it into something real. Uh, buy real money. Buy some gold and silver. Stock up on things that you might need in the future that may not even be available. Buy them now, and if you have a, a decent portfolio, send it to me to manage, right? Send some money to your Pacific Asset Management, and let's you know get you out of harm's way, get out of dollars while they still have value, and build a meaningful portfolio that will deliver uh, real purchasing power. Anyway, that's it for now. Have a great weekend, everybody, and you premium members, stick around. We'll be right back. And again, don't forget, if you didn't like this video, like it, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Leave me a comment and we'll keep uh, this podcast growing and, and more and more people will start discovering uh, the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Thanks, everybody.